Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for joining us to worship with us this morning. As we begin, um, I'd like to uh, start our time together by thanking people and thanking groups that serve in our church. And real quick, before he runs away, I want to thank Daniel Rico uh, for all that he does for our church, um, especially when it comes to music um, and leading our worship team. Um, and a lot of times at a last minute, I throw things at Daniel. Um, like our Ash Wednesday service, I gave him like a week's notice of, hey, can you throw some stuff together so we can plan this service? And he did, because Daniel's awesome and has a great servant's heart. So Daniel, thank you for all that you do all the time. Um, and the rest of the worship team as well. The time and effort they put in um, to making it possible for us to get together and to sing and to have, enjoy God in that way is very important to us. So thank you guys. Um, this morning we're continuing our First John series. So if you have your Bibles, open up the First John. Um, if you're using one of the uh, Bibles in your seat backs, it should be on page 1021, I believe. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible that's around you as our gift to you. Uh, and so we've been in the series of 1 John for a while now, and uh, last week we looked at a passage where John addressed all of the Christians that he was writing to, um, and by doing so, he, he made a point that all of us are at different stages of our walk with Christ, right? Some of us have just become Christians and are still learning and growing, and some have been at it for a while and are building on some of those basic foundations that they have heard. And then some have matured and are charged with helping to lead and disciple others. Um, and I've said this over and over since the beginning of this letter as we've been in this series, that this letter was written to confirm and encourage Christians who are hearing all kinds of other teachings at the time all kinds of other theories and religious ideas. John wants to encourage them and encourage us um, of what they know, remind them of what they know. Here are the basic building blocks. Here are the things you can rest in. Here are the things that you can trust in, the things that you have been taught. And so in this letter, we've already seen how John addresses the marks of what a true Christian looks like and the ways that we are called to live as Christians. And so today we're gonna get another example of that. In today's passage, John makes a statement, a command, really, um, and then he gives us a few potential ways on how our lives can, do, can go in response to that command. So that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 2. So uh, I'm going to pray, and then we can jump in to 1 John 2. So will you please bow your heads and pray with me. God, you, God, you breathe the spirit of life in us. Lord, we ask that you draw out of us the light and life that you have created. Lord, help us to use our lives to reflect your glory and to serve others as your son Jesus did. Lord, we have here this morning a variety of people who have come with a variety of experiences. Some had really great weeks, others it was really hard and tough. But this morning we all come together today to find rest and encouragement and challenges from you, and ultimately to know you better. And so, Lord, be with us this morning. Remove any hindrances or distractions as we pursue knowing you deeper. And as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be glorifying to you. And we pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Everything in the next couple of verses that we just read, everything else after verse 15 stands to support this command. Do not love the world or the things in the world. And so he writes this, as I said earlier, he writes this after reflecting on and addressing what he said were his little children. He said, little children, pay attention. You know the Father. You have been saved. These people he cares for deeply. In other parts of the letter, he says, my beloved, my deep love for you. After addressing them in different stages that they were in, he says here, regardless of what stage, where you are in your Christian walk, do not love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. So what does he mean by that phrase? What does he mean by verse 15? This is not a condemnation of material things in the world. God made the world. He created everything. He created the world for us to enjoy. God's creation reveals part of who he is to us. So it's not that John says, hate everything that we see. The world, when he talks about the world, when the Bible talks about the world, in this way, he refers instead to the system of beliefs and rebellion that are essentially built into the culture of humanity. We've said this a lot of times, man's default, our created default, our, created, our default wiring is sin and rebellion against God. That's how we are, out of the box, sin and rebellion. This default left unchecked and actually instead pursued has throughout time produced a culture of rebellion and pride and evil. And that is what John is warning against. This culture of the world of rebellion and pride and evil. And so John follows up that command of do not love the world or the things in the world with a statement that if you do love the world, you don't love God. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a harsh statement, but we've seen John, we've gotten used to this, right? John's made a bunch of these already in this letter. In uh, chapter 1, verse 6, he said, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In verse 8 of chapter 1, he said, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then even just earlier in this chapter, in 2.4, he said, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. A regular theme throughout this letter is, has been this contrast between God's way of light and Satan's way of darkness. They cannot and do not coexist in equal ways. It is not two sides of the same coin. It is not like the force where there's light and dark and it's all basically the same energy. What John has been pushing in this letter is that there is darkness in the world. There is darkness and then there is God who is light, who is driving out the darkness. And these things are separate and are not equal. Over and over, John has been saying there are two sides and you need to pick one. You cannot straddle the line. You cannot be in both camps. And part of the reason he has said this and he has taken such a strong stance is because these two sides, light and darkness, God's way and the world's way, these two things that we're talking about are incompatible with one another. They just can't get along. They have incompatible views. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why? Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
This list of things, these three elements that make up, really, that are the pillars of which the world is built on, say you can't love the world and God because the things in this world are not godly things. So let's look at these three things that he points out. He says, the desires of the flesh. Desires. Desire is actually mostly translated in the Bible, lust. The lust of the flesh. Craving what is forbidden. The flesh is another way of saying our fallen, rebellious nature. That part of, which, that part of us that chooses chaos and sin by default. The flesh is that part of us that chooses chaos and sin by default. And so you might say, well, I'm saved. I have the Holy Spirit in me, so that's not an issue for me. But in fact, it is. The flesh is not, it doesn't just go away. And we know this because Christians still sin. We still fall victim to the temptations of the flesh. And we see, um, especially the Apostle Paul, working through this throughout the New Testament. In Galatians 5, he talks about the concept that as Christians, we receive a new spirit. We have a new spiritual nature through the gospel, and the spirit and the flesh are at war with one another. And in Galatians 5, he talks about here are the things that the flesh loves, and here are the things that are the fruit of the spirit. He then, in Romans 7, Paul says a pretty famous passage where it says, I don't do the things I want to do, but I, want, but I do the things that I don't want to do. I think that's something we can all relate with, right? There's those times where it's, I know this is wrong, but I do it anyway. Or the times where it's, I know this is right, but I don't do it, because it's easier not to. Christians are not immune to the temptations of the flesh, but through Jesus, through his death and resurrection, we have received the Holy Spirit who is more powerful and with us as a help and comfort in those moments of conflict. And so John says, be careful of the desires of the flesh, the lusts of the flesh. One of the commentaries I read said, that which appeals to our fallen nature. That's what he's talking about here. The desires of the flesh is that which appeals to our fallen nature. And I'll give you an example of how this kind of works out in life. So take eating, drinking, and sleeping. Okay? Three of my favorite things. Fulfilling those things is fine. But when we do it in excess, that is the flesh at work. The flesh seeks to take something that is good, take a good and normal appetite, and fulfill it in an unhealthy and sinful way, oftentimes in an excessive way. So you get hungry, and so you eat. Totally fine. But when you eat in excess, and it's gluttonous, that's where sin enters. If you want to have a drink, you have a beer or a glass of wine. Totally fine. When you drink in excess and you pursue drunkenness, sin has entered. Sleep. I've said it before. One of my mentors once said to me, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. Sleep is good. Rest is good. Taking a break is good. But when sleep and rest turns into laziness and we start ignoring the responsibilities and the lives that we're supposed to be living, now we're in sin. You see, the flesh seeks to take something that is good and a normal appetite and fulfill it in an unhealthy and sinful way, oftentimes in an excessive way. And so the culture of the world appeals to that part of us, that lowest, easiest, weakest part of us, known as the flesh. It's the weakest part of us. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane before he's about to be crucified, he goes off and he prays by himself with the Father, right? And then he comes back to the disciples. They're sleeping. 
So he wakes him up, and what does he tell them? He says, stay awake and pray. Why? So that you will not fall into temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There is always that temptation. The desires of the flesh go hand in hand with this sinful, chaotic world, and it tries to appeal to this lowest, weakest part of us, the flesh. So John says, because of the desires of the flesh, they are part of what the world is all about. Do not love the world. And then he says, the desires of the eyes, or the lust of the eyes. Our eyes have an appetite, right? When I was a kid, when we used to go to McDonald's, um, you know, you get to that age where, like, you think you're too old for kids' meals, but you can't really finish the adult meals. But, like, you're like, no, nah, the kids' meals, that's baby stuff. I don't want that. I want to order off the big kid menu. Um, and so I used to order, when I was growing up, when I got to that age, I would order a number two at McDonald's, which was two single cheeseburgers, fries, and a drink. And I never, ever finished it. Every time. And my dad would threaten me every time. If you don't finish your food, you're going back to the kids' menu. And I just never did. My eyes were bigger than my stomach. The appetite my eyes had was much bigger than what my stomach could handle. What do our eyes desire? That which is attractive, right? That is the things that are nice to look at. And Satan uses this to tempt us. Think about Eve in the garden in Genesis 3.6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. When she saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, it was nice to look at. King David was on his roof one morning in 2 Samuel 11.2. It says, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. That woman with Bathsheba. And eventually David would have an affair with her and kill her husband because she was very beautiful and nice to look at. Throughout scripture, we are encouraged to protect our eyes. They are like windows for us, right? They are like windows for our minds. We can see out, but we are also constantly taking in. The psalmist says in Psalm 119.37, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Help me to not focus on the things that are worthless, that are not good for my life. And so we desire not only what is physically beautiful, but the desire of our eyes is also tied up in our consumerism. We see someone with a nice car, a bigger house, prettier, prettier clothes, and we want them, right? I mean, the pornography industry is driven by the lust of our eyes. Here's an attractive person who will, be with, who will be and do whatever you want them to. They will fulfill whatever fantasy you have, and they're nice to look at. Our economy is driven by the desire of our eyes. It's by the concept of seeing and desiring. You might have a phone that works and it's fine, but you don't have the newest, sleekest phone. You might have appliances in your home, but they don't work as well as the ones we're selling. And it's not only physical stuff that we see. The desire of our eyes can be intellectual desires as well. 
And that's what John was battling against in this letter, false teachings. The people who had manipulated the accounts of Jesus and tweaked and changed things, and the culture ate it up because it was new and different and fresh. They liked to sit around and talk philosophy and theology, and they were always intrigued by the latest concept or thought. And it's tied to our eyes because our eyes are directly connected to our mind, what we take in. Who here has heard of uh, the name Billy Graham? Put your hand up. Most everyone has heard of Billy Graham. Billy Graham is probably the most famous evangelist to ever live. Would do revivals all over, the, all over the world, really. Thousands of people have come to Christ because of Billy Graham's revivals. He was known as the pastor to the presidents. He was like the personal advisor and pastor to multiple presidents. Huge name all over the place. Wrote books, started a magazine, did all kinds. I mean, Billy Graham is, is up there, right? Who here has heard of the name Charles Templeton? Like two or three people. If you go back to the 1940s, uh, when Billy Graham was first starting out as an evangelist, when he was starting to do these revivals and things, Charles Templeton was a friend of his. They actually worked together. And actually, when Billy Graham was first starting out, if you look at the headlines promoting these revivals that they would do when they'd go to towns, it was Charles Templeton who was the headliner. He was the main attraction. Billy Graham was just the opening act. Charles Templeton was the guy that people heard him speak talked to him and said, he's the guy who's going to change things. He's the guy who's going to be a big, important name. He's the guy who's going to be this popular evangelist. And so they worked together for a long time. Neither one of them was ever formally trained, never, never went to seminary, never went to Bible school, just kind of studied and learned and grew, and, and God spoke through these men. So eventually, both of them started to run into some questions they had about their faith started to run some questions about the Bible, about God, and they both kind of hit this crossroads of what to do. Charles Templeton enrolled at Princeton University. Billy Graham went on and, and continued doing what he was doing, preaching and, and being part of churches and, and just trying to learn and grow. And one day Charles Templeton calls Billy Graham and he says, look, you need to come and check this out. You need to come read the books I'm reading. You need to come hear the professors I hear. Because the conversations I'm having is this intellectual world is making it really hard to believe in Christianity. It's making it really hard to keep believing the things that we've been preaching. And Billy Graham had a choice to make. He could go to Princeton and, and learn, or he could continue doing what he was doing. Billy Graham stayed where he was, eventually led the, um, a big revival in L.A., which thousands of people came to. It was his first big independent revival. Charles Templeton stayed in the academic world and eventually died renouncing his faith as an atheist and an agnostic because he chose the intellectual world. Now, academia is good, but when it comes to the desires of our eyes, it's really talking about being captivated by the outward beauty of something without any concern for the real inward value. And that's what John is talking about here. That's one of the pillars of the, the culture of the world is being built on that appeal of something. It looks nice from the outside, but it has no value on the inside. Third thing that John points out here is the pride in possessions. Other translations might say pride of life 
This word pride is, is boasting. It is tied to arrogance. It's not just being proud of something, but it is arrogant and flaunting it. Look how great I am. Look at the great things I have done. Look at the life I have built and how awesome it is. How much of the decisions that we make, the way we spend our money, the clothes that we wear, the school that you choose to go to, how many of those decisions have been made so that you could brag about it? So that you could sit and compare with others and see how your life stacks up to theirs? Pride and arrogance, man, that, that's, that's right up my alley. <laughs> I have found myself at times bragging to others about how I handle the situation with such humility in class. If that ain't the most backwards way of thinking. But that speaks to me, man. Being the best. These things, the way that the world seduces and tempts us, it's, it's been happening throughout history. And it continues to work because Satan is a master manipulator. He is crafty and sneaky. Most of the time, you are subtly challenged and tempted, little by little. And then one day, you wake up and you realize your life is a mess and you have no relationship with God because you have made decision after decision after decision and it has taken you away from your relationship with God. It's a slow, subtle change. If you go and look at Genesis 3 and the conversation that Satan has with Eve, Satan does some work, right? It's not just, here, fruit, eat. He does some work to convince her, to challenge the way that she thinks. It's this slow convincing, and eventually Eve believes it's a really good idea. It's a slow burn. You make little choices about how you spend your time, about how you spend your money, the kind of company that you keep. You start to justify your actions. Everyone has a little bit of debt. What's the difference? I'll buy this thing now. I'll pay it off later. I know a bunch of people with multiple credit cards, and they're fine. Sure, I watch a lot of TV, but it's not anything compared to the other guy I know. You know, I'll be in church on Sunday as long as, it's, as, long as nothing else comes up, as long as I don't have any other plans. Maybe I'll even serve in a ministry as long as it's convenient for me. Yeah, I'll give in the offering if I happen to have a few bucks on me at the time, but as long as it doesn't cut into my daily grande frappuccino, because, man, I need my coffee and I just can't function without it. See, little by little, we make these decisions, we make these choices, and eventually, things start to take over our lives. And that's why John says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because a love of the world is incompatible with a love for God. The love of this world pushes out the love of God in our hearts. Just like you can't root for the Cardinals and the Cubs, you can't have two priorities. You can't have a foot in both worlds. Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 35, it says, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all 
the law and the prophets. Jesus says your priority is love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all that you have, with all that you are. That's the priority. Do that. And as you do that, you will know God deeper. And you will, in turn, then start to see your neighbors, the people you interact with, differently and love them because you have a deep relationship with the God who is the very embodiment of love. See, you can't love God and hate people. You can't love God and hold a grudge against other people. That whole, I love God, but I don't like going to church, I don't like being part of a community like that thing, that does not make any sense. Because Jesus says the church is his bride. So what you're saying is, I love God, but I hate his wife. Incompatible. Does not make any sense. If your top priority in life is loving God, that's going to show in the way you live. It's going to be reflected in your time. It's going to be reflected in your thoughts, in your actions, in your bank accounts. It will come through in the way that you live, in the priorities and the choices that you make. You can't have multiple first most important thing. You can't have two priorities. That's a redundant phrase. And Jesus actually talks about this same thing. We've talked about how 1 John starts off where John says, look, the things I am teaching you, the things I'm telling you are things I heard and saw with my own ears. The things I experienced from Jesus. And Matthew 6, I want you to hear this in comparison to what we're looking at this morning. Matthew 6, Jesus says, starting in verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Don't put your value in the stuff here. The stuff here is temporary. He goes on in verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be in darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The desires of our eyes. What are we taking in? What are we watching? What are we desiring? And lastly, he closes out in verse 24 of Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And really, you can take that last sentence, you cannot serve God and money, and you can replace money with TV, your job, relationship, your power, your money, your authority. You can replace that with whatever your thing is. You can't have two masters. So John's command here in verse 15, do not love the world, it's really for our own good. Because if you love the world, it will push out the love of God in your heart and you will end up in darkness and you will end up alone. Look at verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Stuff is failing no matter how nice a car you might have, or house you might have, or clothes you might have, it's going to fail. It's going to let you down. A couple of years ago, I upgraded my phone. I got an iPhone 5C. 
it was good. Battery was better on the current phone I had. The memory space was better. It was quicker. It was all these things. It was great. It was awesome. Loved my phone. It was super helpful. And then time goes by. The battery doesn't work as great. The camera's not as good. Memory's not as great. And so last week, I went and bought a new phone. And this one, battery's a bunch better. I've only had to charge it like once in a week. The camera is fantastic. There's lots of room for pictures and videos. It's awesome. You know what's going to happen in like three years? That phone is going to need an upgrade. Stuff will always fail, always need to be replaced, never be truly satisfying. Even our bodies fail. Eventually, you get old and you lose your strength and your beauty and your intellect. These things fade away because everything in this world is temporary. This past Wednesday started the season of Lent, and we had an Ash Wednesday service here. And the basic points of the Ash Wednesday service is we take ashes and we put them on our heads to remember and remind ourselves that this world is temporary, that we are temporary, and we are at the mercy of God. See, we are created with a desire in us. There is this longing in us for something better, for something deeper. There's this piece of us that yearns to be fulfilled. And since the beginning of time, man has been trying to fill that hole. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. The men and women of the Tower of Babel wanted to build something tall enough to see God. There have been military rulers and dictators who want all of the power The rich and wealthy want to be richer and wealthier. The smart want to be smarter. The pretty want to be the prettiest. The athletic want to be the best. They're constantly trying and never can be fully satisfied in what they get. The problem is that nothing here can truly satisfy. Nothing can truly satisfy the longing that we have. There isn't enough power or money or beauty or intellect or muscle or drugs or sex or alcohol, TV. There isn't a strong enough relationship. There isn't enough people to be nice to. You will never be satisfied if you're trying to be satisfied here. You will always be longing for more. You will never be fulfilled. You're always going to need more. You're always going to need a bigger fix, a better fix. This world will perpetually prey on that desire and will continuously sell you the same lines over and over again, and we will continuously fall for it over and over again until everything passes away, including us. And eventually we're left with nothing. John's command here is, look, the world is passing away. The ship is sinking. And that's where God steps in. Because the gospel is alive. Truth is found in God. And he has always been and he will always be. He can satisfy. He can fill that desire and that longing. Because that desire and that longing that you have for something better, for something deeper, that desire is to know God more. You were created with this thing in you that yearns for something better, and that something better is to know God deeper. Knowing God is the piece that fits into that hole. And the proof that God will not fail you, 
the proof that God will not fail you and will not pass away is in the gospel. Because the gospel, the good news, is that even though we are sinners and rebels against God, he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross. He comes and he lives a perfect rebellion-free life and he dies on a cross and in doing so was punished. Not for anything he did, but for what I did, what you did, for the rebellion that is in our hearts, for the sin that we have committed. And so on that day, every sin was punished by God through Jesus at the cross. And he died, and he was dead for three days. But on that third day, he rose from the dead, and he proved that he has the power and authority over everything, including death itself. And so while the things of this world are passing away and are temporary, God is not. And as John said at the end of verse 17, whoever does the will of God abides forever, dwells with him forever. Whoever obeys, whoever believes that Jesus, who was fully God and fully human, died on the cross for your sins, in your place, and it is by his sacrifice and that alone that you are saved from the punishment you deserve, that person abides forever. Yes, one day our bodies will fail and we will die. But for the Christian, that is not the end of the story. All that means is that you leave this temporary, chaotic brokenness to dwell with God. To dwell with God in perfection forever. Death does not have the final, world, final word. Jesus proved that in the resurrection. The truth of the gospel reminds us and points us to the one who can truly, actually satisfy and fulfill you. The one who can actually bring you rest and hope and life eternal, and that's Jesus. This world is passing away, so why put your faith and trust in things that are going to fail when you can do it and put your faith and trust in the God who is eternal? This passage, once again, makes it very clear to us you are either with God or you are against God. You cannot play both sides. You cannot hedge your bets. Do not love the world or the things in it because they are passing away, but instead, do what you were made to do. Love God with all your heart and soul and mind, and you will abide with him forever. Let's pray.